But it's good to remember, right, that we are one church in two campuses. God is shaping here in Mount Laurel because of what's happening in Collingswood. And God is shaping what's happening in Collingswood because of the heartbeat here in Mount Laurel. And we're excited as we continue to walk in step with the Spirit uh, with what God's doing. I had the chance uh, to get away for a few days uh, a couple weeks back, um, and I just needed to kind of like clear my head a little bit. And so my wife said, why don't you just go for a few days away, uh, take your Bible, take your mountain bike, and go. Right? Isn't that a, my wife is awesome, right? I told her I was going to make her stand up, but I'm not going to do that. That would be ridiculous. Um, But unbeknownst to me, the Airbnb that she found for me to stay in um, was actually different than what I thought. And so, anyone do Airbnb before? I'm not real partial to it because it's like someone else's house. Feels a little weird. Um, So I walked in, and I'm knocking on the door. No one's home. Uh, And then I hear, like, laughter upstairs. And they're like, Mike, come on up. I'm like, oh, right, exactly. Not what you want when you're getting away from people to have like a a congregation of people inviting you upstairs. The dinner's ready. I literally walk upstairs and they're like, what are you having for dinner? "Uh, uh, Okay, I'll take some chicken. I'm like, what is this place? I'm going to a hotel next time somewhere. Um, So I walk in and I happen to figure out that they were a house church and they The Airbnb that we stumbled upon happened to also be a place that was a Christian spiritual retreat respite, like cabin in the woods. God kind of knew what was happening. Uh, Shame on me for thinking otherwise. But um, I I walked in there, and they're having their meeting, and they're talking together, and everybody's 20 to 30 years older than I am, and I sat down, and they're all like, so you're a pastor, right? (laughs) I'm like, I am. (laughs) So we begin to have this conversation over dinner, and it goes really well, and Uh, At the end, this one guy kind of corners me, and I'm trying to make my escape to, like, not be around other people at this point, uh, away time. And he corners me, and he was like, all right, I got to ask you a question. Um, So you're a pastor of a church, and one of the things that uh, that I always notice is that pastors love to talk about me all the time. And uh, when you go back to your church, can you please just talk about Jesus instead of talking about me. And I was like, oh, well, that, that was easy. Like, I can do that. And he's like, no, but seriously, we, a bunch of us moved from the city. A few started a farm. Uh, a few others were doing some other jobs. But we would have made the commute in an hour away to the city to go to our church that we've been part of for years. But I just felt my heartbeat drifting more towards Christ than towards people telling me what I have to change in my life. And he said, you know, the crazy part is, If we really believe all these things are true, the Spirit's at work in these people. The Spirit's at work in me. And so present Jesus and let the Spirit make the application. So I'm not going to make many applications this morning. I'm hoping the Spirit is at work inside of you. And if you come away with no applications, then you probably don't have the Spirit, right? That's just how it is. That was a joke, a a spiritual joke. Um, So, but here's the thing. We're going to just present him this morning and let the Lord take care of what he's at work inside of you and me this morning. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. In Romans 11.36. So by way of review, we've been talking through uh, the Passion Week, the, the days leading up to the death and resurrection of Christ. 
Uh, Sunday was the triumphal entry. There were some palm branches being laid down, and the king has arrived. He's coming into the holy city, and he's riding a donkey. What is this, right? Humility at its finest, the king coming in on a donkey. Monday and Tuesday, we find out that Jesus goes to the temple, and he sees that people are trading and selling and all these different things, and he says, my house is a house of prayer. What are you guys doing? And he begins to flip the tables and say, come back to the purity of my house. He also talks to a fig tree, and uh, we see the illustration talked about with this fig tree that uh, the fig tree is producing leaves but has no fruit. And so one of the things that he compares it to is kind of like our heart. If we are living and following and saying religious things and we're all show but have no fruit, we're as good as dead. And that's what happened to the fig tree, focusing us on the heart. On Wednesday, Jesus found some solitude away from uh, people and things, kind of got away. Jesus, or Judas found some coins for his pocket because he would later go to betray Jesus. He went and made an agreement with the uh, officials, and they were going to come and arrest Jesus if he would kiss him on the face. Now, Thursday would come, and this is the upper room uh, conversation that happens. They're celebrating Passover. It's all this time. They eventually go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and then very late uh, on Thursday night or into Friday morning is when Jesus would be arrested. Thursday is a day throughout the Passion Week that is steeped in deep theology and powerful imagery, which we're going to talk about this morning. Um, so if you want to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, we're going to read verses 17 and following. If you have a, a Bible in the pew there, it's page 703. I'm going to read together the account uh, of Thursday. Starting in verse 17 of chapter 26. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. 
Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Bold words for Peter. And all the other disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked, Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if then it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Let's pray this morning. Lord, the account of Thursday's events in the Gospels talk about your love for us. Lord, in the face of betrayal and denial and our own sin which separates us, it's your love that stands out. Lord, this is your story. It's all about you. And so help us now as we read, as we understand more truth about who you are, God. Might you be lifted high, that we might see you together. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Got three quick points for you this morning. The first one, if you're a fill-in-the-blank kind of person, Jesus is able. Um, in each of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we find this account of, of Jesus saying, I want you to go into the city, I want you to find the certain man, and the preparations for Passover will begin once he takes you to the correct house. Jesus said that. He, he says that everything happened just as, just as he directed them, and then they prepared the Passover. But in that day, women were the ones who carried the water. If you've ever been to a, a third world country or maybe a Middle Eastern country, uh, you know that women go to the well and they gather the water and they bring it back. They often are like the beast of the village. They carry it on their head, uh, sometimes even like large stalks of grain. I'm not even sure how their necks can support it, but they do and they carry the water. So to have a man carrying water would have been very strange, but this is what he said. You'll go in, and the man carrying the pitcher of water is the one that will take you. This is going to be the sign. He would lead them to the upper room. They'd make preparations. They'd celebrate Passover. A small part of the story, not a huge detail, not something that sticks out that you want to highlight. Go find the man with the water. This is not one of those passages that you memorize and put up on your wall, but it is significant enough that it was recorded in three out of the four Gospels. Why was this significant? What was the point of this being uh, recorded? I think it was significant because it was just another moment where Jesus 
pre-planned, predetermined, pre-appointed, and was over every detail. God's fingerprints were all throughout this story. And as he's walking to his eventual death, he's intentionally choosing all of these things. This was yet another moment where he displayed his power. He is able. I mean, really, the question, can, can anything thwart God's plans? We think of all the evil and the things that have caused uh, havoc in this world. Can anything thwart God's plans that he would overcome and that he would be the one on the throne? He is able. Remember, at this point, Judas had already taken the bribe money. The coins were in his pocket to go and betray Jesus later that day. Um, And what had happened in verse 16, we read that uh, Judas was actually looking and seeking the moment that was most opportune for him to go and to betray Jesus. So if that's the case, if Judas were to happen to know the the circumstances ahead of time, they were going to be in this room, all he'd have to do was kiss Jesus on the the cheek, and then he would uh, be able to, to go on with his life. But it all happened according to this purposeful plan that Judas did not know where the upper room Passover celebration would happen. That it would happen in, in such a way that he would still have the chance to minister to Judas, to Peter, to wash their feet, and to do all these things which were so important, including the Garden of Gethsemane. You see, Jesus is able, and as he walks toward death with intention and obedience to God, this is our Savior. He's saying, guys, stay with me, follow me. As I walk toward this, as you follow me, I'm with you. For from him are all things, Romans eleven thirty six. Jesus is able in all of these circumstances. The second thing is that Jesus is love. Again, not an earth-shattering truth that you maybe didn't know before, that Jesus loves you is a really important thing. That's the thing you want to put up on the wall memorized. Jesus is love. The Gospels deal specifically, though, with two people that... Jesus shows love to. The first one is a man named Peter, the one who would deny me three times. And second, it deals with Judas, the one who would betray Jesus for a pocket full of coins. As the Passover meal is underway, Jesus begins by washing their feet. And you know that uh, at this time, in this culture, sandals were the appropriate footwear of choice. And they they wore sandals and they walked throughout the villages from town to town. Um, And so their feet got dirty. Uh, Bathing was not really like an everyday thing. It was more of a ritual, uh, a moment, not like an everyday thing. Feet got really dirty. And at this time, the Passover celebration, everybody would go into Jerusalem. A quarter million people would descend upon there. And I'm sure the nail salons were completely booked. No pedicure appointments available, right? Dirty feet, nothing taken care of. It's gross. And Jesus displays humility at the very beginning of this Passover supper, and he says, I want to wash your feet. And then he teaches them that they're to go and do the very same thing to other people, that humility would be the very beginning of his kingdom. It wouldn't start with him riding into the city on a great white horse. Humility was riding in on a donkey. Humility was washing people's feet in service. And there was a a moment when he went to wash Peter's feet, and Peter began to push him away and say, don't wash my feet. No way, you're not going to do this. And what does Jesus say to him? In John 13, 7, it says, Jesus said, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. The the idea is that, Peter, I know that you're going to disown me. In fact, 
I, I've already told you that. But I, I want to humble myself and I want to serve and love you in the midst of this. And in this way, his specifically reminding Peter of his love, even with the foreknowledge that he's going to go and deny him three times. There's another special moment in the scripture that talks about Judas, right? This guy who sold out for some money. I want to read in John 13 his account of the upper room here. It's, it's a fascinating uh, account here. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which was reclining next to him, which was reclining next to him, Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. But as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. In the day of Jesus, special meals often took place in what is called a triclinium. Three tables in a uh, triclinium, that's the shape it is, a U-shape, and then there's some couches laid out around or some cushions. And how you would eat these uh, special meals would actually be laying down. Very weird, right? Why would you want to lay at a meal? Maybe it's a digestion thing, but I don't really get it, but that's how they did it. They laid in a communal setting, and they enjoyed the meal together in this shape. And as the meal ended, the host would often take a, a choice morsel of food. It was called the sop, and the, the host would take that meal, and uh, the, that, that piece, and it would give it to often the, the guests that he wanted to show favor to, and they would dip it, and it would give them the very best piece of the meal. And we note here that Jesus, as the host, had John, his favored, his most beloved, to the right of him, and then Judas was the second place of honor, right to the left. This man that sold him out had coins in his pocket at the meal. Imagine that. Now, if you've ever shared a meal with people before, maybe this is uh, just a, a weird thing that we do in our family, but if we go to a restaurant and we all get different things, we're like, you got to try this bite, and you, you share a bite, and you let that person take a bite of yours, and, and then you're like, ooh, I'm glad I chose my meal because yours is terrible. One of those things, right? Well, I often get something with seafood, and what inevitably happens is I'll make a, a, a bite, I'll give it to somebody in my family, and I notice, oh my gosh, there's two shrimp on here. They don't need to taste the very best of my meal. I can only have one shrimp. They'll get the point of how good my meal is. But not so in this culture. They formulated the best, the very best, and gave it to that person with intention, with love, and with favor. John recorded here that this special moment that was very important. That actually, as all this is happening, as all the foreknowledge of betrayal and denial that were coming, Jesus said, this is for you, Judas. I want to show favor to you. I want to show love to you. I know what you're going to do. And I want to show you love, even in the midst of this. The knowledge of impending betrayal. I love you, buddy. I don't know if you're wrestling with 
your own brokenness and sin and failure, maybe keeping you at a distance from God, but I beg you to let the words and the way of Jesus confront our childish attempts to just self-protect our sin. He knows, Peter, before you even denied him, and he loves you. He knows, Judas, that the coins are already in your pocket and you will betray him, and he loves you. He knows, friend, that the anger is ruling your life, and he loves you. He knows that doubt is overtaking you and you just feel like you can barely hang on. He knows, and he loves you. He knows, young adult, that you've tasted some freedom now to do all the things that you've ever wanted to do and no one's telling you wrong. He knows, and he loves you. He knows that you are completely addicted to the approval of other people. Social media has dominated your complete life. He knows and he loves you. There is a better way. He knows your propensity to just speak whatever comes on your mind. Just let it out and dish it out to those in your midst. He knows and his love is not dependent. It wasn't then and it's not now on your actions or failed attempts to get it right. Let him have it. He's carried it to the cross. We know that now reading back over the story. For from him and through him are all things. He knows. Jesus is able. Jesus is love. And Jesus is the new covenant. After Jesus and the disciples had finished the meal, they left the upper room and began moving their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane was a place that was a little distance away, and so they traveled from the upper room there in the bottom left. They made their way over to the garden, passing through what was called the Kidron Valley. You see the temple is right there, and uh, that's uh, a moment right in the edge of the valley. This is actually looking from the corner of the temple down into the valley. Uh, it's probably the place where uh, Satan was tempting Jesus, come up on top of the temple and look down, jump off and see if the angels will come and protect you. Uh, this was part of that. And, and we see the valley is kind of just a, more of a ditch. It's not really a huge valley. Um, but there's something significant as when they went down through the valley, up the other side, and into the Garden of Gethsemane. It's actually, in Scripture, pretty muted. The point is not really um, loud at all. It's between two verses and there's really not much there. Wouldn't speak out at all. But if you were part of this culture, this may have been the very most loud part of the entire narrative of Thursday. This moment where he went down from where the upper room was to the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, to this point, the Kidron Valley had been associated with death. We know that the poorest of people were buried there. The common people were just thrown down and they barely didn't even get a plot. They just kind of put him in the ground at the bottom of the Kidron Valley. Absalom, when he was chasing King David out of the throne, was chasing him across and he fled on foot across the valley to escape. It was the death of King David's reign. King Asa and Josiah and Hezekiah all throughout their reigns, at various times they would clear the, the whole city of of all the idols and the false gods and things. And they said, bring them in. We're going to put them in the Kidron Valley. We're going to have a giant bonfire and we're going to burn them up. And so it became the death in the Kidron Valley filled with ash of these false gods. It was said that during Passover, as the priests were sacrificing, close to a quarter of a million lambs as sacrifice. That's what you did. You came into the city, made the pilgrimage. 
you made the sacrifice, you celebrated the meal. Well, it was said that during Passover uh, that they actually, when they were sacrificing the lambs, there was lots of blood, and they would actually, during normal days, pour the blood into these drains, and it would drain down and go out. But during Passover, they actually plugged the holes of the drains. Well, that's kind of gross. That's kind of odd. Why would they do that? And as recorded in the Talmud, that actually the priest would be standing up to shin deep because the the stores of blood would would pile up of a quarter million animals being sacrificed. Man, if that's not bringing the the reality of someone's got to pay, someone's got to pay to the forefront, it was for them. And what would happen is after all of the sacrifices were made, somewhere around three o'clock in the afternoon or so, uh, they would let loose all of the blood and it would flow down and a river of blood would flow through this Kidron Valley. And then they would flush it with tons of water and cleanse the temple and everything would be washed away. But at this moment, as Jesus and his disciples are walking through, is there not still maybe a bit of a stench, maybe a little bit of stain on the dirt as they're walking through? Because what had just come was something really significant. And so as they are there walking through the valley of historical death, maybe over still the river of death, and Jesus was on his way to death. Only this time it would not lead and end in death. Amen? Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, death would be no more. The sacrifice for sins would no longer be on those innocent lambs as they walk right across that river of blood, but it would be on Jesus. The last death to cross over this valley would bring life. A new covenant was in the making. The way to make a new covenant with God was through someone paying for our sin. And praise Jesus, he did. This is love. This is undeserved grace. This is significant. It's Jesus. He is able. He is love. And he is the new covenant. For from him and through him and to him are all things The imagery and beauty of Christ in the Easter story is just profound. Man, you can just dive in really deep with some of these things and see the way that it was so significant and so intentionally crafted by the Lord from what we have written. But the reality is, it's always been about Jesus. It's not just that all of a sudden Easter came and it was all of a sudden about him. It's always been his story. History is really his story. Tim Keller shared years ago at the Gospel Coalition, he was uh, preaching and he went through this whole passage, this whole talk about this idea that Jesus is the new and better version, the true and better version of all these different things throughout history. I want to read a portion of it to you this morning so that you get the weight of what Jesus is. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the Garden of Eden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and step into the world to rescue a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and now he uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his friends. Jesus is the true and better David 
whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who did not just risk leaving an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate and heavenly one and gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. He's the real Passover lamb, the innocent, perfect, helpless, slain, so the angel of death would pass over us. He is the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. You see, the Bible's really not about you and me. It's about him. And so this morning, as we gather around the truth of what happened on Thursday, it's not first our story. It is about him and the way that he's worked. We wrap up here as he finishes. He concludes and begins to make three very similar prayers in the garden. The first one he says is, My father, if it's possible, if there's any other way, May this cup of your wrath be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And we have this record of actually an angel coming and strengthening Jesus in the garden. As droplets of blood are coming down, he strengthens Jesus. Which, that's an answer, right? It's like, no, there's no other way, but I'll be with you. I'm going to strengthen you. You're going to walk through this. This This is the only way, Jesus. The second time, my father, then if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Submission, humility. And I can't help but think of Isaiah chapter 53. It's a passage that is so rich. If you've never gone to that chapter of the Bible, do it. Uh, And we're going to read it. I'm really excited about this. It says this, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, crush Jesus, and cause him to suffer And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Catch the meaning. Jesus in the garden, he was looking and he knew what Peter was going to do. It already had done. He knew what Jesus had already done. And yet, he went to the cross. He, he walked that way. I'm sure he even had you and I in his mind in the garden of Gethsemane. Man, I, I know the whole weight of the world and all the sins of these people. They're on my shoulders. He saw you and me, his precious offering he would see them and save them. What a gift that you and I were included in this. So my question this morning is, I wonder if you realize and are living that Jesus is able, and circumstances that are out of your control, are you believing that he is able and to do those things? I wonder if you know that he is love, or maybe you're feeling, you're feeling like you're kind of far from God's love, and you maybe need to keep a distant uh, walk Have you hidden in your shame? Would it change you if you knew that he already knows and it won't change his death on the cross? Would that change the way that you feel toward God? I wonder if you know that Jesus is the new covenant, that promise between God and man, the the deserved punishment for our sin, it's totally on him. It's not on you any longer. And for those that name the name of Christ and surrender, 
It all points to him. For from him and through him and to him are all things. God, we give you praise this morning. Or maybe we just need to come and confess maybe our desire to read your word and have it magically do something for us. We first want to worship and fall down at the feet of Jesus. The intention all throughout Thursday, from the very beginning all the way to the end, you are staring death in the face. Lord, it was difficult for you as you uh, prayed in the garden. Lord, if there's any other way, take it. But you also willingly surrendered that your Father's will would be done. It actually pleased the Father to crush you on my behalf. That's messed up. I don't understand it, but it's love, and I can bring that in, God. We thank you for this reminder this morning. In your name, amen.